Welcome to the Black Duck Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Wilkins. I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with a fascinating collection of folks, all of whom have in common that they've made a way for themselves by finding an intersection between thoughtful consideration and the tactile work of getting their hands dirty. This is an examination of intention, capability, and craft. It's where philosophy meets the blue collar work ethic and where I find real value. Hey folks, welcome back to the podcast. This week I am joined by Rick Spicer of Fayetteville, Arkansas. Rick is kind of a difficult fellow to describe because he is involved in so many things and he keeps himself so busy really trying to be the best at all those uh, different activities that he's pursuing. He's an entrepreneur. Uh, Most days you could find him at the store that he co-owns, Pack Rat outdoor center there in Fayetteville, Arkansas. He's also a uh, rock climber, a mountaineer, an adventure racer, uh, an adventure race planner and organizer. He's a uh, backcountry skills expert. He's a primitive skills expert. I can also tell you after knowing him for a couple of years now, he's also just a really fantastic person. He's a great dad. He's a great husband. This is the kind of guy that you want to know that you want in your life that you would be super lucky to have as a neighbor or a friend. And he just kind of really brings an enthusiasm to everything that he participates in that I think is super infectious and just completely unironic and just a pleasure to be around. So uh, I think you'll you'll see that uh, very quickly in this interview as soon as we start talking about what it is that Rick does he immediately kind of plunges into that description and there's, there's no, uh, there's no pretense to it at all. He's super excited. He's super enthusiastic about it. And that just kind of, uh, that shows. And man, I, I so appreciate someone like that. Everyone's trying to be cooler than everybody else. And Rick kind of manages to do that without trying anyway. So I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with my friend, Rick Spicer. All right, folks, uh, we're back with a new episode. I'm still up in northwest Arkansas, a foreign land from my flat landing origins there in central Arkansas and over on the Delta side. But this week I am joined by Rick Spicer. How would I describe Rick Spicer? Uh, bad MFer, perhaps, <laughs> would be the first description. Uh I might just ask you how you describe yourself. You know, I, I know you as, uh, I don't know, you know, entrepreneur, you're uh, an owner or co-owner of like a very well-known outdoor store here. You're, uh, you're very involved in like kind of some of the more traditional hunting aspects, uh, as far as like archery, flint napping and the like. Right. Uh, we were just talking about it. You spent a, you had like a long, uh, long career in mountaineering but yeah how would you describe yourself rick oh uh, unfortunately for better or worse the the phrase jack of all trades master of none definitely comes to mind um 
there's just too many cool things to do out there and in the outdoors for me, I think is a lot of the problem. And I've never been able to just like stick with one, like, and that's been a big source of frustration for me, I think, because it's, you know, uh, I heard a long time ago, somebody talk about like being an 80 percenter. I think it was actually Yvonne Chouinard of uh, who started Patagonia and talked about how he was like, you know, he was wanting to like get, get to like 80% efficiency and uh, on one hand, like, that's great because, like, if you can do 80, if you're 80% of something, like, you can participate well in that thing. But, like, I'm probably never going to know what it's like to be a 90-plus percenter in anything because I can't stay with anything long enough to get there. And that's a little frustrating, but that's okay, too, because, like, my life since I was a kid has been about being outside, doing different things, whether that was rock climbing or canyoneering or adventure racing or hunting or fishing or you know any number of what's adventure racing uh so adventure racing is where you usually have a group of people as a team and you're competing by orienteering and you're there's it takes different shapes or forms and so sometimes you're like running or hiking sometimes you're cycling sometimes you're mountain biking and uh paddling and climbing and doing all these things and so i used to adventure race but i also and then i also got into like obstacle racing and did like the spartan stuff for a while if you're familiar with that but then like i was a rock climbing instructor and a rigger for a long time and so i actually worked on adventure races as a staff member so i would like build uh, like the, the high angle components of these adventure races. So I would like have like rappel sites or we would build these like complicated river traverses where you'd be like on a line pulling yourself across a river or like a zip line or something like that. So those are things that, um, I I both competed in and also constructed. Um, are you doing this stuff out West? No, predominantly here in Arkansas. There was one years ago called the Ozark Challenge that I both competed in and also used to be a crew member for. And then, uh, you know, it's hard for me to get around talking about my own adventure race that I actually am the director for now. And that's a a race here in Northwest Arkansas that we do down in the Mulberry River called the Bruja Bushwhack. Mm -hmm. And so that event, what I, I took my love and background of adventure racing and I combined it with bushcraft and primitive skills to create something where it's like new school, old school, where I'm, uh, we're not, there's no cycling in this one, but what I do is I, there's, so you compete as a team. It's three or four person team. And it's more about what you know than how fast you are. Like physical ability helps because obviously you can move faster and more efficiently through the woods. But um, the teams get a topographic map. And unlike a normal tra- adventure race or like an obstacle race, like usually you go from point A to point B to point C and so on. With this one, I give you a map with points all over it and you go where you want, when you want. So there's a lot more strategy involved. You design your own course. And then along the way, they're doing obstacles like, or not really obstacles, but challenges. Like, so you have to uh, maybe start a primitive fire. You have to uh, show that you understand some first aid scenario and, you know, get someone out of a plane wreck or some weird thing and like splint a leg and do some of that. You have to paddle. Um, You have to be able to get in a canoe and, and do those kinds of things. You might have to make natural cordage. You might have to build a Paiute deadfall. 
uh, trap. Uh, you might, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that you may have to do and it changes every year and the competitors don't know what the challenges are until right before they do them. And so there's this mystery of the whole thing. Do you mean like the day they, they do it or do you give them like a little bit of heads up so they can prepare? I give them a little bit of heads up. So the way it works is there's an equipment list and the list is very small. And an example of the equipment list would be like a knife. Uh, and when I say a knife, I mean like a fixed blade bush knife, not like a pocket knife. Because mm-hmm. um, they're going to be doing a lot of woodcrafting, building stuff. Uh, but like a knife, paracord, a shemog, a metal water bottle, uh you know, maybe a space blanket or something like that. And those are the tools that they get to solve the problems with throughout the race. Um, and so I'll tell them you need to know like how to tie these three knots. And I may tell them you need to know how to like do this particular type of first aid skill. Um, they know every time there's going to be fire involved, but you know, they get more, the harder method they choose, they get more points for it. So if you can use like a flint and steel, you get a certain number of points, but if you can do like a bow drill or a hand drill type fire, you get more points because you have a higher level of skill you've attained. And so it's, and it's all point based. So it's not about like, you can come in first and that doesn't help you at all. Like it's not who crosses the finish line first. It's who earns the most points throughout the day. And you earn points by getting to the checkpoints and you prove that by reading the map properly. And when you arrive, there's like a secret password that's like on a tree Mm -hmm. and you have to record that in your little passport book that you've got with you. And that earns you points because we check it at the end. After you complete challenges, you earn points. And then there's also nature ID the whole way. So you have to ID plants, trees, animal tracks, maybe even arrowheads and types of stone. It's all different kinds of stuff. And so I'm giving them clues through emails that I send out to the teams uh, along the way um, so that they have some idea of the types. Because it, it's, it's such a vast amount of knowledge. I have to give them some idea. Mm-hmm. Like if I didn't tell them anything, it would be really challenging for them to know what to study and what types of skills to work on. And I actually do training uh, days leading up to it. I've got one coming up. Uh, here in another week or so where all the competitors, if they want to, can come to the pack rat where I work and I'll, I'll, we'll be outside and I'll be doing this stuff. So if they want to learn map reading skills, if they want to practice their primitive fire skills, we'll tie knots, we'll build shelters, we'll do all kinds of stuff, um, to kind of, you know, help increase their, their skills and their knowledge so that they can be more competitive and, and have more fun, you know, while they're out there. Uh, and then the other component that I started doing last year that's been a lot of fun is it kind of took on a biathlon vibe and we've got bows involved. So now not only are they doing all that other stuff, but they're carrying a traditional bow and a set of arrows with them. And at every checkpoint, there's a target. So you're orienteering through the woods, finding these checkpoints, you're shooting your bow, you're doing primitive skills, you're IDing components of nature all with your friends. And in the end of it, we have a big festival. We have, we got kind of like a big party at the end of the day and it's a ton of fun. So, man, I didn't, I knew, I knew about that event. I didn't realize, I didn't realize it was that involved. That's wild, man. It's a lot uh, yeah. going on. <laughs> uh, it will consume my life. So we're, it's the 9th of April this year. So we're a little over a month out. Uh, I think yesterday, this weekend was five weeks away and it will basically consume me the rest of my time for the next five weeks to get ready for it. 
All right, so I, man, that's so much information. <laughs> All right, so I'm gonna roll back a little bit here. Uh, is this so? Oh, no, I'd ask you this question real quick. Sure. Is this something? Are you doing this? Is this just like a passion project, or is this like? This is a passion thing. This is not. I mean, a, is this part of how you make a living? No. I, so, yes and no. That it's not in the sense that like I don't make hardly any money off this thing, even because it costs a lot of money to put mm, this on. I can on. imagine, yeah. Uh, and you know, obviously, competitors pay to to be a component of this, but like, there's a lot of logistical things to pay for, and we have this whole thing catered. And like, so there's a barbecue dinner at the end and beer and all this stuff. So, um, it costs a lot of money to do it. I'll be perfectly honest. Like it's a, as far as the, the money making or what it does for me financially, it's a, it's a part of our marketing for the pack rat where I work. Yeah. It's a brand builder. It's a brand builder. Yeah. It's a, Hey, like this is what an outdoor shop that cares about their community and wants to do cool stuff can pull off. And that's, that's what it's about. Yeah. It'd be cool one day if I actually made some money. Up. <laughs> my, my wife would think that was, would be really cool, <laughs> but, uh, I just love doing it. It's a ton of fun. The, my biggest problem, honestly, is that I've created something that I can't do because I'm the director of the event. Yeah. And so as like literally every year it's, it's how do, how do I like the way I design it, I guess, is it's like, what would be the most like kick-ass day for me in the back country? And that's, that's how, that's how I design it. I'd be out there like climbing through steep terrain and shooting my bow and building fires and making shelter and ID and plants and animals. And like, you know, that's what it, that's what happens. It's, I take all of the things I love and I just combine them into one day and and that's how it works. I mean, so. hell man. I mean, that's kind of what I've done with black duck. Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. What, how many participants do you have in that? So th this year there'll be 160 people competing in the event and, and it sold out like weeks ago. They're not all coming from Northwest Arkansas, surely. No, no, though that, you know, it depends every year's a little bit different. Um, a lot of them are from Northwest Arkansas for sure, but we definitely will often have people come up from like Texas, Oklahoma, Missouri. We've had people come from like, I think one year we had somebody from like North Dakota. We've had some people from out East, like East coast people come over. And the, and the other thing that happens is like, people have done it years ago and then they move, but they mm -hmm. still know about it. And the, I think one of the coolest things for me about this is this event has become something that like circles of friends will plan their year around. And it's like a way that this group of friends will come back together once a year to do this thing. And there's like no more perfect example of why I like spending my time and energy doing something like this than if I can provide an outlet like that for a group of people. Like, honestly, my favorite part of the whole day is when it's over and everyone's accounted for and like nothing, you know, we've gotten through the craziness and then just like getting to walk around and talk to the competitors and hear how much fun they had that day. That is like literally one of the single best days of my life all year long is like getting to hear their stories and like, oh man, remember that challenge or we did this or that and how we solved that problem and it was fun. And like, yeah, it's like, that's what, honestly why I do it is to get to have that, those interactions. And every year it like, it's like recharging my batteries. 
and just getting to hear those stories from people. And yeah, I mean, I, th- I think I would do it. If, if the only thing I ever got out of it was that I'd probably still do it because that's enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, you know, it sounds like a, like at its core, it's kind of like a community building exercise, right? It, it is. I mean, it's so multifaceted. The other thing that is really cool about this event is that um, it's such a huge demographic. There's young, old. Now I have families bringing their kids to do it, which I got to be a little careful with that because, like, there's a lot of safety. We, like, we say we take safety very seriously. I have a physician, an ER physician, who's a medical director. Like, I'm a wilderness first responder. A lot of the other people that our crew members are. And so safety is a big deal, but like, it's so cool to see like, you know, parents with kids or like friends who like, uh, I've got a real good buddy, this guy who's been doing the race for a year. In fact, he was at uh, Black Bear Bonanza uh, yesterday. This guy, David White, David White is like the best dude in the world. Like, uh, he's, I don't know how old he is, uh, but he's an, he's an older guy. He's got a big white beard, but he's out there with his buddies who are half his age you know, running around through the woods and that, again, nothing makes me happier than seeing like old, young men. And then there's like all female teams, which is so cool to see like a group of women out there that got inspired to come do this thing and they don't need their husband or their boyfriend or any of that. They're doing it on their own. Um, like, and then, but then they're all doing it together. And then like the other cool thing about it is like, I encourage teams to help each other. So even though it's a competition, the other thing that is really cool that ends up happening is teams will like combine and you'll see this group of like 12 people moving through the woods that have just like made friends that day. And I I know that I've seen people like meet up with other teams that they didn't know. And then they like become friends because of that event. And it's like, yeah, it's just a really neat, uh, thing that, you know, me, and it's not all me for sure. Like it, there's an amazing group of volunteers. So it takes, it takes about 40 volunteers. And these are not just like, you know, uh, anybody uh, off the street, so to speak. Uh, these are like people I've known for a long time. Many of them are very skilled outdoors, men and women, um, either in a lot, but they're, again, they're, they, they're from very different backgrounds. It's young, old men, women, um, and uh it takes a lot of people to pull this thing off and uh there's no way i could do it without a lot of like very dedicated volunteers and uh it's cool for me that way too because i get to it's the only time of the year all these people are in one spot and getting to be able to be with them and like share stories from years past and all that is it's a lot of fun yeah it's a lot of work but it's a lot of fun so all right so excuse me so yeah, now I'm gonna take it back because we've kind of like I, I I'm actually into how this worked out. That's kind of like the culmination of all this other stuff that I think we need to have a little bit sure. of explaining about, right? Yeah. But I think your description of it is is super it's super demonstrable of like who you are, like the kineticism involved in you describing that, right? Because it's obviously something you're incredibly passionate about. So we're sitting up here on the top floor of your home. You know, there's all like all these artifacts around here, right? Uh, yep. And we've discussed this. So you're you're living here in Northwest Arkansas, right? You've established yourself as like this uh, 
like an expert in your life and and you know i i think a lot of times i talk about like the outdoor industry and like kind of the part of it that i deal with is like the hunting part of it but like outdoor industry you know is it's really, especially out west too. It's a lot of like you're talking about, like rock climbing, and right. backpacking, and mountaineering. Yep. And uh, you know, like people like like Kip, like rafting and all that stuff, yep. right? Yep. So, uh, and that stuff, I don't have like, I was gonna say a ton of experience. I don't have any experience in it. Uh, but like, what's the what town are you? Because you're from East Arkansas. I'm from West Memphis. Oh, you are? Yeah. Okay, so you're from West Memphis. Yep. Uh, which if folks are not familiar about it, like, honestly, like, probably a modernity, its claim to fame would be like uh, like a like a child, uh, a tragic child yeah. death, and then this, like, West Memphis 3, right? Yeah, but West it's, Memphis 3, unfortunately. Yeah, but West Memphis is in Arkansas. It's... It's like right across the the border from yep. Memphis and Tennessee, Five right? Five miles west of Mississippi. Yep. It's uh, and it's very much kind of like uh, it's not small in the way that like maybe a place like Clarendon or something would be uh, because it's right there on Highway Forty, but it's kind of like the junction of Highway Forty and Highway Fifty Five. Yeah. Which is like those are like the two highways that bifurcate this country. Yeah. Like up and down. Yep. And left they and cut right. it through the middle. Yep. Pretty much. Uh, and there's like a, there's actually like a really long West Memphis, you know, there's a long history of like that place was like on the Chitlin circuit. Uh, and it's just been this kind of uh, transverse route that people, it's, it's like a lot of people come through there. Probably not a lot of people stop there other than to get gas or something. Yeah. But so where you're living at now is not just on the other side of this place of this, this state that we live in, but it's also like uh i would say culturally and geographically it's kind of like antithetical to that place yeah, right completely like so west memphis is going to be like delta very flat yep. uh it's i wouldn't call it rural right uh just but like the population of people is going to be very different right yeah uh i mean west memphis is probably what like largely african american yeah right yep northwest arkansas ain't right. yeah. <laughs> it's the population has gone up since i've been up here this weekend uh <laughs> but um but yeah you're also dealing with something that's flat you're dealing with something over here that's mountainous right you're probably dealing with like recreational activities northwest arkansas has become this hub of climbing and like paddling yeah, like and, an adventure sports yeah mountain yeah. biking and stuff and <clears throat> yep. like on a national scale right yeah yeah uh and then also like you're talking about a place that economically is going to be very different. Like Northwest Arkansas is going to be a hub of like commerce. So you have uh, like the JB hunt and you have Walmart and you have art museums and all that stuff. And West Memphis, <clears throat> excuse me, is going to be kind of the antithesis of that. Right. Right. So, and I'm just trying to explain that to a broader audience that doesn't know Arkansas right, 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 as much right. as we do. Right? Yep. Exactly. But so I'd be interested, you this guy from West Memphis, right? You're probably. And I should clarify that uh, I lived there until I was about 10. Okay. Did you, did your family move up here? So my parents split up when I was four. Okay. And so my mother and stepdad moved up here, but my okay. dad and that whole side of my family stayed there well until I was uh, an adult. 
so I would go back there multiple times a year and did until I was well into my 20s. But okay, I, but you, you kind of grew up half there and then yes, half up here. But, yeah, just to clarify, yeah, as a young kid, I, I, I was there and then um, moved up here to Salem Springs super briefly, only for less than a year. But, I, you know, I went to junior high and high school in Fayetteville. Okay. So All right, so, yeah, that's a big piece of the puzzle. Yes. So – so that's an interesting dichotomy then, man. And and then also, like, as far as hunting, didn't, like, in the Delta, like, you were waterfowling, right? Yes. Like, hunting and fishing, for me, as an, act- as an outdoor activity, were first, you know, by far. And that was going to river shoots, you know, dailies. Uh, I'm, I'm starting to get old enough now where I'm forgetting the names of some of these places, but like Horseshoe Lake, you know, places like that. Yeah. that we would go to when I was a kid and crappie fishing, catfishing, running trot lines, limb lines, all that type of stuff. Yeah. Like that's what my I grew bread up. and butter. Yeah. yeah. That's what I grew up doing. Um, and, uh, and interestingly though, one of the, my greatest, so we would, well, I say bluegill now, even though I shouldn't because of their brim, uh, where I grew up and nobody else in my family, me probably, <laughs> probably says bluegill, they're, they're brim. Um, but I grew up brim fishing with an automatic fly reel on a eagle claw fly rod. And that is like a, a solidly implanted thing in my family is fly fishing for panfish, specifically brim and shell crackers or red ear yeah yeah yeah. and so yeah you're east arkansas showing if you're calling them shell crackers yeah so uh and so, yeah and so like it's funny when i i was there long enough that like i end up saying things two ways i do that a lot i'll call something two things because the old is still important enough to me and i identify enough with it that i can't leave it out and and I think it's enough of my identity that it, that I need to make sure I bring it up because for people that know the difference, mm-hmm. it means something to them, like you. Sure. And so, uh, if yeah, if I just called it a red ear, that's not quite the same thing as if I called a shellcracker, right? And so, yeah. Uh, so yeah, so we would go, you know, also too, like down to Mariana to Bear Creek, and that was like a pilgrimage. That was like my favorite thing to do when I was a kid. Was uh, we would go down to Bear Creek. And uh, whether it was with my dad or my grandpa, but we'd have these old Shakespeare automatic fly reels. You'd twist them, yeah. you'd wind them up, and they had a lever on top, and you'd squeeze that thing. And uh, we'd be fishing with crickets and red worms uh, for, for uh, brim and shellcrackers, and that was like heaven on earth to me for most of my childhood. Like, that's what I wanted to do. Uh, and so did that for a lot of years. And then as I got older, uh, my dad was a, a big time hunter, has been uh, my whole life. And he introduced me to firearms and, you know, got me a single shot 410 and started squirrel hunting, started rabbit hunting. And, uh, you know, I think I was 12 when I shot my first deer and uh, with shotgun. And uh, after that, it was like, that was like what I wanted to do. You know, it was like I became obsessed with deer hunting. And kept deer hunting for a while, but then were you were real quick. So were you like slip hunting or were you stand hunting? Oh, mostly stand hunting. Okay. Yeah, I, I I wanted to be a, a kind of a you know a still hunter. Um, I, I, it was funny because like nobody else did that, and so I, I would always be like, I'm going to take my gun and I'm going to go slip through the woods and I'm going to shoot a deer. And 
I tried for years and years and never did uh, until I was actually in high school. And then I actually started being able to do that and did, did kill some deer that way. But, um, I, uh, I, at the sort of same time I was super into hunting at this point, I'm living up here and I'm like in junior high and I had some friends in school who like, um, I can't remember how they got into it, but they started like rappelling and like getting exposed to rock climbing a little bit. And, uh, I was, I heard about it and I started asking them questions and, um, some of them were like in scouting. In fact, some of them went on to become Eagle Scouts and that type of thing. And, but they had, um, there's kind of like this off branch of Boy Scouts. Uh, it's called Explorers. Yeah, yeah. And there's an Explorer post. Okay. So like there's a group of us when I was probably like, I want to say I was like 14 maybe. And uh, a bunch of these guys that I was um, in junior high with. And um, so I started going to these Explorer Post meetings. And that's where I got introduced to like some climbing and like backpacking. And, and all of a sudden I was like, this is awesome. Like I just like I was is as instantly and as equally obsessed with wanting to learn how to do that as I was with deer hunting. And so I started like, I'm, you, you can ask my wife, but like, I'm very, um, like, I don't know if obsessive compulsive, that's probably the right word. I don't know. But when I decide, when I make the decision, I'm going to do something, I, it consumes me. Like it's everything I can think about. And so everything, of course, back then there's no internet. And so I'm looking for books, I'm talking to people, but everything I can read, everyone that will put up with me long enough to answer my questions, I'm talking to them every opportunity I could get to talk somebody into, um, taking me out to do things, you know, I would do it. Um, and so, yeah, I guess for, at that point in my life, you know, as a kind of young teenagers where like all of these things started to connect dots for me, but I, I liked doing them all so much. It was like, there was never one that was like, okay, I'm going to give up this other one now because I like this other thing. I just kept adding things, yeah. you know, to the list. And I, I guess I never stopped. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so yeah, that kind of explains, yeah. And I'm familiar with the explorers. I was a boy scout. Uh, I never did the explorer stuff. Uh, but it's probably also worth explaining to people. So like Northwest Arkansas, this is an area that, you know, we're talking about the Ozark mountain range. And so for people that are like from further West or I guess East as well, but mostly West, you know, when you're dealing with like these big, tall mountain ranges, right? Like 8,000, 10,000 feet in Colorado, Utah, whatever, that's different than here. Right. And the reason is because, so the Ozarks, if I get this right, the Ozarks were created through like an eruption, right? Like it's, Land coming together, right? Well, so the Ozarks, it's the it's the Greater Ozark Plateau, and the so the Ozarks are actually this massive plateau that um, 350 million years ago is like a warm shallow ocean. This area was, mm -hmm. and uh, so we have all these different layers of like sandstone and limestone that over time built up, okay, and created this like plateau. Our mountains in the Ozarks are not really mountains. They are an eroded plateau. So we have these deeply cut valleys that are about a thousand feet in relief. 
Okay, so okay. I'm getting it backwards. The yeah. Wachita's, the Wachita's, the Wachita's, which yeah. is further south. That's from seismic activity. Correct. This is yeah. from this, this is, is created erosion. from erosion. Like, but is it? Uh, water erosion or like glacial erosion? No, it's water. Yeah. Okay. I don't, to my knowledge, the, we don't really have any evidence of like glacier activity. It was a little further north. They got close, but not, it didn't come down quite okay. this far. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but so we're dealing with like, you know, quote unquote mountains, but we're dealing with like thousand to 2000 foot yeah, kind of drops. Yeah. Right? And so, you know, we'll have relief here um, from, you know, so in the Ozarks, uh, it'd be, we don't have anything that's 3,000 feet. It's all going to be sub 3,000 feet above sea level. But we have, but the, so if the top, let's say, is, you know, 2,700 feet tall, um, we might have uh, a, a valley that drops 1,500 feet or so, you know, in a very short distance. So it's a very rugged landscape, um, but it's very different uh, from the west because all the mountaintops, because it's this eroded plateau, are largely the same height. So if you look out across the Ozarks, the tops of the mountains are very, very similar in height. And it's because they're not really mountains. There was this plateau that was mm-hmm. in-cut by... Um, we have this incredibly... It's one of my favorite parts about the Ozarks, but this incredibly intricate like stream system here. Like all these little tiny fingers of these different like intermittent streams that, you know, become bigger streams and then become rivers and they weave themselves all through the backcountry of the Ozarks. And, uh, and some like cool endemic species. To, like, yeah, just to those places. we have some amazing wildlife here. And um, yeah, uh, yeah, it's, it really is. Our, our backcountry here is very beautiful. Um, very different, um, it, you know, not unlike Appalachia in a lot of ways. You know, I, I also uh, spent a little bit of time living in East Tennessee and, and spent some time over in North Carolina. Um, those mountains over there, they get up to five, 6,000 feet in elevation. Mm-hmm. So they're a lot bigger and they have different, um, you know, uh, you know, plant life and things like that over there. But in a lot of ways, it, it reminds me. It's it's similar. And culturally, like, it was settled by, yeah. like, some of the same people, like this Scotch-Irish people descent. And then, yeah. <clears throat> like, now we're talking about, like, Northwest Arkansas has this, I mean, you know, probably arguably, like, the most modern part of Arkansas, right? But uh, 50 years the, ago, it, yeah. was, it was pretty... It was like backwoodsy. Well, the thing, though, is is that, yeah, I mean, now in the past, say, 10 years or so, we can talk about modern, but, like, you still, I can dr- I can take you in 20 minutes in a car. We can get in, and we can drive somewhere that is backwoods. Oh, yeah, no, I'm aware of it. You man. know, and so, and I know you are, I just bring that up for the, the listeners. It's not like, you know, we're, uh, yeah, all that hasn't gone away. It's still very much a, a backcountry uh, population um, living in, in Northwest Arkansas, no doubt. About it's it. also this, uh, it was like a Hamlet, like in the seventies for these, like back to the landers hippies. Yeah. So it's like this weird kind of conglomeration of, and I don't mean this in a diminishing way, but like when we say backwoods, but you know, kind of, yeah, backwoods kind of Appalachian style, uh, very sequestered, yep. small cabin living community type people and then you had these like hippies that were coming down here from other places because land was really cheap and uh so there's like that kind of layer on it now now all those hippies are like old people right right? but like there's a there's a town 
called like Eureka Springs, right. which is a good example of that. It was like this old Victorian town in the Ozarks. And now there's all these, then all, so it's like, it looks like an old Victorian kind of Swiss town, but there's like crystal shops yeah, and but it's, super it's like hippie vibe. Yeah. yeah and it's like <laughs> the place where like gay marriage was legalized right. first in Arkansas and like, uh, marijuana was decriminalized there, but you go 10 minutes outside yeah. of there and it's a whole different whole kind of world. Different thing, yeah. Uh, yep. but anyway, so yeah, I'm sorry. I'm spending all this time explaining Arkansas to people, but. So we talked about these artifacts that are here, right? And I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to miss talking about some of this because I alluded to it in the beginning. You've talked about your interest in what you termed like primitive skills, right? But so just for like folks that don't understand that, that might be, you know, you've probably seen some of this stuff platformed on like the Discovery Channel or something in just popular culture. But you know, you're talking about people that are making. Uh, can make fire with like a bow drill or, you know, like survivor man type stuff or uh, yeah. Right. I'm just trying to give like an easy sure. into it for people. Uh, people that are a little more familiar, they might talk about uh, like traditional uh, archery when we get into that. So there's levels. So folks don't understand this. So, and I remember like, you know, the first big game animal I killed, I killed a white tailed deer uh, with a bow. And I remember telling my dad that, and then I showed him my bow, and he's like, that's not a bow. Because it was like a compound <laughs> bow, right? This, like, wheeled contraption. It's not what comes to mind if you think about a bow and arrow, right? right? So then you take a, a step away from that, and you get into what folks call traditional archery. And that would be – traditional archery could be quantified as, like, a recurve bow. So And that can be made from all sorts of materials. Like, a lot of them are fiberglass. Uh, that was big in, like, the 50s and 60s in America. Yeah. There's, like, another level – uh, away from that, that would be like a longbow. Uh, that is kind of what you think of as like Robin Hood, like that kind of old English, just like a curved bow. Then you get away from that and you start getting into something called like a self bow, which is where, you know, kind of on like the purity scale or so to speak of, of archery, the more difficult you make it, kind of the shorter the effective range of the instrument, uh, it's just kind of like extra extra hard points, right? So you go from like this wheeled bow to like a recurve to a long bow to a self bow, and that would be a bow that might not not even have like an arrow shelf. You might be shooting that arrow might be resting on your hand where you grip it, uh, and then you start to get into uh, you know people that are creating their own bows, people that are creating their own arrows like nowadays we're dealing with like fiber not even fiberglass like uh, com carbon composites yeah, uh stainless steel blades mechanical blades that open up when it hits a target but you go all the way back and you start getting into like single bevel metal blades or like what's sitting behind me a bunch of napped arrowheads right and so this is what you would think about like if you found uh uh, found an arrowhead in a creek bed or something. This is like a, a piece of stone, right? Like commonly people think about like chert or something. Yep. And someone has taken a percussive instrument. So say maybe uh, like a, uh, an, a piece of antler or bone or something. And they have strategically chipped pieces of this stone away to create uh, not just the shape of an arrow, but, uh, or an arrowhead, but also like, essentially a serrated blade right yep and then uh you know and then so you start 
that's kind of what people think about when they think about arrowheads really in popular culture. And then we get into stuff like, you know, Folsom heads and all these specific sure. ones. But uh you're you're passionate about using some of these what you know a lot of people would consider antiquated methods right sure uh and we talked about this a little bit before we started recording but there's obviously an appeal to you in uh the exertion of effort right and maybe not making things difficult obviously i don't think making things difficult just for the sake of it but uh I don't know. There's probably a component you, of that. You think so? <laughs> I think so, yeah. I, I mean, uh, my whole life, and I can't, I, I still don't know that I can explain it, but like, a great, ex- this is stupid, but like a great example for most of my life is like, if there, if I have the choice of riding up an escalator in a building or taking the stairs, I walk up the stairs. Why do you think there's value in <sighs> making something harder? There's something to be said for using your body and not relying on technology to accomplish what it is you're trying to do. And it just always felt like the right path to me to choose the hard way. And, you know, I'm not saying that's right. That's just what works for me. Um, But like almost every time in my life when I'm given the choice of doing something that has some, advantage that makes it easier or choosing the harder way to do it. I, I, it's not really something I have to think about. I'm just going to pick the hard way. And I don't, I'm not, I don't think I ever come at it like I'm sadistic. I'm like, like I'm trying to punish myself, you know, or anything like that. It's just that when the job is done and, um, it's completed, I find more value in the experience because of it. And it could be something simple as walking up a set of stairs, but I feel like, you know what? I got a little bit of exercise. That was good for me. Now on to the next thing, you know? Uh, and a lot of that's subconscious, but not always. Sometimes, um, sometimes, uh, you know, maybe, maybe there is more thought put into it. Um, but I just know that how I feel after I do something that requires a lot of effort is a lot better. Like my mental space is a lot better than it is if I do something that, you know, made it easy for me. Um, I felt like I cheated myself a little bit because I took the easy way out. Um, I've just always been that way. And I, I, I honestly, I don't know where that comes from. Okay. So I'd ask you then, how do you find your line? Because, so like what we're talking about, right? Like I'm looking at uh I'm looking at arrows that have obviously been manufactured out of like some sort of a some sort of cane, right? Yeah. It looks like they're fletched with uh so, yeah, turkey feathers, yeah, right? Those are, it's Arkansas River Cane, wild turkey feathers, uh sinew white tailed deer sinew, pine pitch that I made, and napped stone points that I uh that I chipped. So Okay, so like gnarly stuff, right? But there's a level of technology into that, right? Oh, absolutely. Like you could you could roll it back to an atlatl. No. You could roll it back to I just could take a stick. Running right? something down until yeah. it was exhausted and collapsed. Yeah. So like how do you find 
how do you find the line that uh, seems like the best of both worlds? Yeah, I, I think that when there's a method that um, is enjoyable to you, and like for me, like I just genuinely enjoy the process of crafting something like an arrow. Um, and there, it's a multi-step process that, you know, each little part requires a different technique. Um, and then when you're done, like, yeah, I don't know what it is about arrows and maybe, I don't know if it's the best example, but like, I, they're just beautiful to me. I think now I would probably make them even if I didn't hunt with them. Like they're just, it's a fascinating tool. Um, and like archery in general, like it couldn't be a more simple thing, right? Like you take a string, you put it on a stick and then you take another stick and you pull it back and let it go. But from there, it can go a thousand different directions, right? And that's awesome. But like, it, there is a, a way of connecting to something that when you harvest materials from the earth and then you can use skill that you have in your own hands to make something and then you can turn around and carry those back out in the woods um or on a trip with you and you're you know you are actively participating in the process of hunting um, or even not, even if it's just like stump shooting, but you're out there and you're breathing fresh air and you have these things that you made in your hands that you took from the landscape. Yeah. It just like brings it all kind of back full circle for me, I guess you could say, um, in a way that fiberglass and carbon fiber just can't do, uh, for me. And I, and I'm not dissing anybody that hunts with like modern stuff. Like that's great. If that's what you're into, it's just not what works for me. Like they, um, like for like a way, another way to think about it is like, if somebody told me like, okay, you can go shoot this like monster buck or, and, and, but the only way to do it is it's, it's a 45 yard shot and you've got to do it with a, a, a crossbow or even a compound bow or you have this like doe or, or small buck that you can shoot, you know, with your, yourself bow or whatever. Like I'm probably going to shoot the small deer. Like even if I could go shoot, because it's about the process, like it's process over product for me. Um, how you get there means everything in my mind. And like, again, I have to be careful sometimes cause I can kind of get on a little bit of a soapbox where like I'm talking to hunters that are friends of mine and they're using compound bows and they've got a freeze frame for a second. Cause look, I really want, I talk about this. We're conditioned to explain away our positions. I think too much. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So like you're doing this because you think it's a better way than the way other people are doing it. I'm saying that Rick's not saying that I'm, I'm saying that I'm, uh, I'm interpreting that way. I do things the way I do them because I think that's the right way to do it, right? right. So like I don't, we can we can assume that you think that people that shoot uh $2000 compound bows can still be good people. Right? Absolutely right. But no question. There's 
there's a part of you that thinks the way that you're doing it isn't just better for you. Do you think, okay, let me ask you this. Yeah. Do you think, because you're talking about process over product, yeah. right? What you're really talking about is craft, right? You're Absolutely. talking about forming things. You're talking about craft. Yeah. So then we enter this realm, something I talk about all the time, artistic expression and everything, yeah. right? So do you think that the world would be a better place? Do you think hunting would be a better space if more people were going about it with the intention and methods that you do? I think that, yes. I mean, if I have to just, if you, if you yeah, frame no, it in a yes or no question. I'm trying to get you to say that yeah. because I, I just, I, I want to give you permission to and I, say that. And I say that if I had to put my finger on, if I had to like call it one thing, I would call it mindfulness. Yeah. Because it's, and again, it goes back to like the making it easy thing, right? It's just like you see, you watch a TV show or whatever, and it shows you how you can go buy this, buy that, and get this gear, and then go out and you can do this, and you can kill this animal. And whether you're doing it for horns or meat, like it's still, I still feel like it kind of makes it too easy. And, and I'm not sitting here, like I hunt, I'll hunt with a rifle. Like I'm not, you know, I'm not saying this from the standpoint, like of like looking down or anybody. I mean, I shot a, a buck with a shotgun this year, uh, this past season. So like, you know, I, I fully get like, you know, hunting for sustainability and all that. And I'm, I'm the first, you know, guy too, that like, if I, what doing this stuff is hard. I mean that, but that's the point. But there's a lot of times where yeah, I'm not successful, yeah, right? Yeah. And and I but I choose to do it anyway. But I'm also the type of person that like I believe in to the extent that I can feeding my family through, you know, hunting and fishing and and my outdoor pursuits. Um, and so yeah, I got no problems like going and picking up a, a rifle or a shotgun and going out and, and shooting a deer if I need to do that in order to get that meat, you know, for the freezer. But um, but there is a component of appreciation and connection that I get. And I think a lot of other people could also get if they were to dive a little deeper and put a little more effort into the, the process of, you know, going out on their hunting experience or fishing or whatever that may be. And like you say, where's the line for that? I, I don't know. That's, that is um, specific to the individual. And it is one of the most interesting things about the time that we're living in right now is because we have choices. Like, where did the, all this technology come from? Well, it came from people that were trying to survive. Like they, I mean, if they'd have had a compound bow, would they have used it? You better believe it. Yeah. You know, they were, because they, you know, it was <clears throat> living and dying. Right. Um, but through the, the trial and errors and the hardship and all the things that, you know, indigenous first peoples did in order to develop these, these primitive technologies, I think that it fostered this connection and appreciation um, to the natural world that we lack in a lot of ways these days. And I can't get away from that. It's always in the back of my head. And I just feel better about you know, the, the act of doing what I'm doing, um, when I approach it that way. Yeah. No, man, look, I, I appreciate it. And I've, I've waxed poetic about, 
you know, like I kind of think like a shotgun in some ways, you know, if I'm going to be honest, I think a shotgun is maybe, maybe a little more pure than like a real long range rifle. Sure. Right. Cause right, I, right, right. I kind of feel like it's, you know, I think that, you know, like you can pretty much give any child a rock and say, hit that side of that barn and they can do it right and the extension of that would be like throwing a spear or something right right? the extension of that is like how can i propel this more then you get an arrow yeah the shotgun is kind of like the point and shoot it's not exact accuracy right or at least not the way that i shoot it's not um and then you know i'm kind of still on that line of making the transition between like someone brought it up like this industry, you know, quote unquote industry person brought it up the other day about like like people have taken notice about the fact that because like there's been pictures of me in like a magazine or something, right? And he's like, "You're shooting a an 870, a pump shotgun." Like no one, no no known <laughs> waterfowlers shoot pump shotguns anymore, right? Uh, and I've I've got like a nice high dollar shotgun, right. like a semi-auto, and I've never killed a bird with it because now some of this is just my comfort level and what I'm used to. Sure, absolutely. But. Uh, I do think that I feel like it's a little bit high, slightly higher on the purity scale. And again, that's not to diminish anybody's specific choices because like kind of what I'm getting at is that these are pursuits where you do have this range of choice. And that part of what I like about it is that you have the ability to develop your own ethoses around it. And then that those, those can develop and wax and wane as like, situation dictates or your position dictates or just your knowledge base dictates right so it really is not it's not a condemnation of other people but i do think it's disingenuous i i think it's disingenuous to not admit sometimes that like we're doing something because we think it's we think it's a the best way to do it i I agree with that you know and and i'm also like like, look, for better or worse, like, we've, we're at a point in society where we're all afraid of stepping on each other's toes, right? Sure. Like, and we're so, like, I've, I'm guilty of it. Like, I find myself sort of dancing around stuff sometimes because it's like, like, I don't want to offend this person. Like, you know, maybe because I don't know them. I don't know what their background is. Maybe I do know something about them, and I, it's just that I'm trying to be respectful of that person's totally. position, right? And so, like, respect is another thing about a, lo- a big part about the way I try to live my life just because like, I mean, without going off on too much of a tangent or anything, it's just like, I honestly believe that like respect and just in general is a major missing component of our society. Like we just, there's Mm, not enough of it to go around these days. And so, but that doesn't mean that you have to apologize for, you know, all of your decisions for the way that you lived your life. You know, you can still respect someone even though you're different, you know, and sometimes you agree to disagree, and I'm definitely guilty sometimes of like maybe not being leaning in enough to like who I really am because I am like, for you know, I don't want to offend anybody, and it's a it's a tricky thing sometimes because I having respect for people and their positions is an important thing to me. And it's not so much about like being a hunter and that whole thing. Like I'm not making any apologies for being a hunter, mm-hmm. like, you know, to anybody. Um, but we have different life experiences and like, I am fully aware that like what my background is and how I grew up is very different from a lot of other people and what their experiences are. And so you never know 
like what a first impression is going to lead to or where a conversation is going to go. And so, I don't know. I just, I'm one of these people that like, I, uh, uh, I don't know. I try to listen a lot more than I, I, I talk just because I feel like, um, I don't know. I just think in general, like a lot of people maybe use their mouth before their ears. Uh, sure. Probably most and, people. Yeah. Man. <laughs> I mean, dude, look, what you're talking about is, is being a decent human being. Right. And yeah, I mean, you talk about respect, you talk about decency, you, the acknowledgement that, and I, I've said this specifically, I'm not talking about alternate facts, but truth, there is a relativism to truth, right? Sure. Through experience. And, and, and I do think it's like worth remembering that it's not just about like looking at the world differently. Uh, It's also about, uh, you know, you can, you can actually, you can love people that that uh who have a different truth than you right mm-hmm. uh and like we're probably most familiar with that with just like you know generational stuff in families or whatever right, right? Oh, like yeah. everybody's got some crotchety old dude oh, in their family yeah. that like thanksgiving becomes like a, <laughs> oh, an endurance <laughs> test right but uh but no i i do i appreciate people that that have positions that aren't impositions to other people. Right. Right. And that, and that, but still like hold true to their position. So, uh, no, yeah. And I, I appreciate the ability to, to have that conversation. Uh, man, probably maybe it's, maybe it's fortuitous. Maybe it's serendipitous, but like, so behind me, I have this archery equipment, right? To the, the right of me, I'm looking at like a deer skin, and I see like a coon tail hanging out of it. Right? We've talked about we've talked about these arrowheads and and whatnot, like woven kind of uh, containers and vessels. But like the thing that my eye keeps going to is this bookshelf over here, and on the the end of this bookshelf, is like very prominently featured is a uh, is a is a book, and it says J.R.R. Tolkien. Right. <laughs> uh, and I do want to kind of touch on that because I'll just look. I'll I'll uh, I'll expose some of my soft underbelly a little bit, right? <laughs> so, like, I'm a person who grew up reading, like, reading Tolkien, right? Mm-hmm. I'm a person who like grew up on science fiction. There's there's a there's a fantasy element to it, right? Yep. Uh, now, I also think that I am inherently a very practical person. Mm-hmm. But there's an element of like imagination and uh, how would I describe it? I, I yeah, I guess it like kind of like imagination and maybe even being able to. No, I'll tell you what it is. It's an element of adventure, right? And that's Absolutely. a word that you used at the beginning of this conversation, and I can't help but assume or think that 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 has been a you know that has been a current throughout your life like i'm i'm thinking i'm thinking here now like we're talking about all these different points of interest you have right we're talking Mm -hmm. about all these different 
ways to expend energy and expend effort and be mindful, right? And then I'm thinking of uh, the analogy, like you were talking about these Ozark streams and these fingers and then running to this like, this kind of identity, right? Right. So w- what about, and I, I mean kind of in a pure sense of adventure, mm-hmm. right? Like the, the peaking over the hill. Right. Like, am I interpreting that right? Is Do you think that's, do you I think did, that's yeah. formative for you? No, I think it absolutely is. Like, so another, I don't know if any, many of the people that listen to this might have much of a background in rock climbing but like in rock climbing um just like really quickly like there you can divide it like anything lots of different subcategories but like um you have one type of of rock climbing that a lot of people would call cragging and basically you're going to like a cliff where you would like you can see the end of the climb from where you stand so like you can get to it in a single rope length or less and so what you're trying to do is like see how hard of like a technical climb you can get up, like how small can the holds be and you can get to the top, but you can see it all. It's right there all in front of Mm -hmm. you. There's no mystery because you, the whole route's right there versus climbing a mountain that's 2000 feet tall. I can see a very short distance. And then after that, it's gone. I don't know what's up there. It's in the clouds. That's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in what's behind the clouds. What's what's up there around the corner that I can't see. The stuff that's right there in front of me. Uh, yeah, it's kind of fun to try hard and it's like cool to like train a bunch and see if you can get good enough to like do this move, but I get bored with that really quickly. I'm a whole lot more interested in what what's around the corner up there that I don't know about. Is it actually because you want to know what's up there or is it like a route to your own self-discovery? Oh, I think it's both. I mean, I'm fascinated by the natural world and I, I do want to see rats around the corner. Um, but yeah, it's definitely also for me uh, a, uh, you know, some there's some self-discovery going on there. I mean, it, it is a physical thing still. Like I, I like the effort required to, you know, put myself and, and combining skill and knowledge, you know, learning how to, you know, use the, the, you know, rope system safely, um, and working with a partner and having this like teamwork component so that, you know, you're, you're sort of looking out your, each other's lifeline, you know, as you're moving up into the mountains or whatever. And, you know, maybe if you didn't have that person, all of a sudden you'd be in a lot of danger. So there's this like connection you have to that person. And then there's this like physical connection that you have to the, the mountain itself. And then there's this like metaphor of like the rope connecting you. Um, and then there's like the unknown of like, I don't, I don't really, you know, I think I have an idea of what's up there. Cause like maybe you read a little bit about it in a book or something that gave you a brief description, like a couple sentences. But like, other than that, like you don't really know what's going up there and you hope you're good enough to get it done. Um, you know, but, uh, I think it's all of it. Like that's, what's so appealing. And that's, you know, I think you can make that same comparison to like building primitive archery gear and going out into the woods. You know, it's like, I don't know what's over that hill. You know, is there going to be a deer over there? Maybe, maybe not. Can I get close enough to take a shot? Like odds are not really in my favor, but man, if I can pull it off, it's going to be rad. Like that's, I I think that's just how I approach everything. And then, 
you know, with hunting, there's just like this other layer to it because after, you know, if you can harvest this animal, now you have the meat that you can consume and you can share with your friends and your family. And if you're a primitive hunter, like I'm harvesting bones and I'm cutting sinew off this animal and I'm maybe turning the antlers into tools and doing all this stuff and I'm keeping the hide and, um, yeah. And, it, and then I take that sinew and I make new arrows with it and then I go back out again. And, um, that, that's something that hunting provides you with that, like sort of a lot of, that's a missing component from a lot of the other, uh, outdoor adventure sports, um, that is really unique to like hunting and fishing, I think. Uh, and I think one of the things I appreciate about it most, because I'm, I love, I love like layers of things um like the more layers you can put into an experience kind of the richer that experience becomes um my favorite day you know some of the uh, best adventures you know if i look back in my life are things that required like multiple disciplines or multiple skill sets in order to complete that thing um whether that's climbing a mountain and that required some knowledge of snow and ice and rock, you know, and, and then, then the, and like reading a map because it was hard to get to, and it was way back in the back country, or that was going on a back country elk hunt where you had to, you know, you had to hike in really light and, and because you were staying back in there for multiple days and you've, you're, but you're doing it with a longbow and you know, all of these things. And then, then there's the pack out after you're done. And if you were by yourself, it would kill you to do it, but you've got two of your buddies with you and they're going to help you, you know, carry all this meat out. And then, you know, the first time you, you know, cut a piece of that tenderloin <coughs> and, uh, you know, you cook that and you're standing there all behind the truck and you put it in your mouth and you're like, this is what life's about. Like th this is, uh, yeah. I mean, it, I don't know how else to, to really put it, but like, this is what living like in that moment, it's hard to feel like more alive. I think than like sharing a piece of tenderloin that you hike 2000 feet off, you know, down off of a mountain, uh, with a, a group of friends. Or the other side of it, I mean, I'm a, I'm a dad too, you know, I've got two small kids and, you know, taking them, uh, out onto the Buffalo river and, you know, teaching your kids how to, how to cast a, a fishing rod and, you know, watching for the first time, you know, your, your son or your daughter, like reeling a small mouth and like take it off the hook all by themselves and like see that smile on their face. It's those layers. It's like all those layers that, that sort of come to fruition together, uh, to connect these, like, these moments that unfortunately most of us don't get nearly enough of these days, uh, you know, and sometimes I feel like I'm like living my life from like one of these moments to the next. And there's, a, that's not to say there's not a lot of good stuff that happens in between. Um, cause like for a lot of us, I mean, I realize like that's where our, our lives are lived, but I, I'd think that you're selling yourself short if you're not doing everything you can to create those moments when you can get them. Um, and at least that's how I look at it. So I do everything I can to make as many of them as possible. Cause there's, you know, we were talking earlier, uh, about how like there ain't no guarantees, right? You get in that truck and pull out and somebody sideswipes you or you're staying in the grocery store or something crazy happens. I mean, uh, you, you may as well, um, do everything you can to create as many great moments in your life as possible because, uh, 
you know, it could all it could all be done tomorrow. So I hope not. <laughs> yeah, I hope, hopefully. Yeah, not. I hope not because I got a lot of a lot of plans. I, I think a lot of us do. Um, Man, let's actually. I was. <sighs> I was thinking about wrapping that up because it was so poetic, but let's talk about one of those new plans you have. So you've added, uh, you've added another element into your offerings, right? Uh, which let's just talk about briefly, which is, yeah. this, uh, I'm sitting here next to a sewing machine, uh, and some, some con- constructed, uh, vessels of a different nature. So why don't you <laughs> tell me about that? Yeah, so um, a couple of years ago, I was working with a buddy of mine to create this uh, this back quiver. I've never been a guy that liked to have a uh, my arrows on the bow when I'm hunting. They just for whatever reason, I like the bow to be clean. It just feels better. It's lighter in my hand. It's more maneuverable. And so then you're like, okay, well, how am I going to carry my arrows? All right, hold up. Yeah. We got to freeze frame for a second. We need yep. to explain this. So. Uh, a quiver, and if you're not aware, is just just like something that holds arrows. Like, if you're a kid, it might be like an old Quaker Oats container with yeah. like your arrows in it, right? Uh, and then compound bows, trad bows, self bows. Uh, people have ways to like clip that onto the bow so that you're you're carrying. You can simultaneously carry arrows with you, and then like pull one off put it on the string and then shoot it. And right. Rick is saying that he finds that to be cumbersome. And so he wanted, he's looking at a quiver that like kind of Robin hood style more or yeah, less. Yeah. Back quiver. Yeah. Wear it on your back with like a strap or something. Right? Yep. Yep. And so, yeah. And so you've got, you know, quivers that can go on the bow, some that go on the hip, some that go in the back. And I've used a ton of them over the years. Um, but I started working with a friend of mine uh, to produce these back quivers because there was really, oddly enough, the way it started was I wanted a back quiver that had a water bottle pocket on it. And, and I looked for one and I couldn't find one. And so uh, I start, you know, being like, well, can I make one of these things? You know, and I started trying to piece something together and it just was like, not what I wanted. And so I, I reached out to a buddy and, um, he, for a little while he was making these things, but there's a lot of, of effort and time that goes into producing these. And so we sold a few, um, but eventually he was like, man, I don't have time. I gotta, I gotta do my own thing. And I was like, Hey, I get it. And I, I reached out to quite a few brands trying to find somebody that would work with me to build these. And so, um, you know, but that was COVID was going on. It was crazy. And just no one was really willing to you know talk about this type of project or anything like that. And so you, I finally, I was like, you know what, if I want this thing to exist, then if it's going to, it's going to be up to me to do it. So I was like, well, hell with it. I'm going to buy a sewing machine. So, um, I'm in the process right now of, uh, kind of starting up this, um, this new company for me, uh, it's called off grid threads. And, um, I didn't want to make it like too specific to archery, even though the ultimate end goal is this quiver. Um, because I was like, you know, who knows I may end up, uh, you know, yeah, doing who knows what. Um, and so far, you know, it's been, it's predominantly wax canvas that I'm working with, uh, a little bit of nylon and stuff, but I really love the medium of wax canvas. I love that it's a natural material. You can reapply the waterproofing yourself to the products after the fact. Um, and, uh, so, so far it's, uh, that material is kind of what I've, I've leaned into a little bit. And that's, I mean, that's on brand, right? Like that's like yeah. kind of an antiquated out, yep. not antiquated, like filson 
tin pants or sure. something or that yep. style. Yeah, totally. It's in, it's in that vein for sure. Um, and so far, um, you know, I don't have a background in sewing like this. I'm totally self-taught on this. Um, and so I've been in the process of like teaching myself how to sew and I've, you know, making like these little zip pouches and just doing some simple things. Um, but I'm in the process of kind of working up to create this like updated prototype of this back quiver that hopefully, um, down the road will be on the market, um, in my shop predominantly, uh, at Packerat or, you know, I may be selling them like through, uh, Instagram or something like that, you know, on, a, on its own website, um, which I do have plans to, to get up and running. But I mean, you know how it is when, when you're the one, um, making all the wheels turn, there's only so many hours in the day. It's tough to do it all. But, um, but I, this is a project that I'm, I'm definitely dedicated to. And in fact, you know, some other things that I enjoy doing have, you know, kind of taken a little bit of a backseat. Um, last year I was spending a lot of time, uh, building self bows and long bows and that sort of thing. And I do love doing that, but, um, this, you know, this sewing things is, uh, something I'm pretty passionate about. So, um, some of these other projects I was working on are going to kind of hit the pause button on for a little while while I get this figured out. And here you are still, or still are, have started to, uh, you're building arrows for sale. Yeah. So yeah, we have a traditional archery department at my shop at Packerat and I am building uh, custom arrows for that. So like, yeah, that, that is just because like the type of arrows that I want to be able to offer are not really something you can just go buy. At, um, I mean, you're not, you're not selling like cane. Are you doing no, like cedar so, shafts and stuff? Yeah. So what I'm predominantly, uh, I'm working with Sherwood shafts, which anyone that's a traditional archer may be familiar with them, but they, they produce very high quality, uh, Douglas fir shafting. And so I'm buying the raw material that's already been, uh, turned. And so it's, it's a raw shaft. There's no sealer, no stain, and it's, you know, cut to, I think they come at about 32 inches. And so I take it, I stain them, I seal them, I cut them to length, um, cut knocks into them, either glue on or, or cut in depending upon, uh, you know, what somebody wants. I'm fletching them myself, glue on points, um, all that type of stuff. So it's a all hand, glue on points. Yeah. I don't do any inserts or okay. any of that type of stuff. Uh, I, you know, the nice thing about, uh, hot glue for traditional archery it's super fast to heat up a point and switch them in and out mm -hmm. so it's not as easy obviously as, as screwing an insert uh but um it's really not time consuming at all and it, i really like the um yeah the hot glue works fine so yeah i like the glue on stuff but uh and i i switch them out a lot you know i shoot you know field points and blunts and stuff a lot just for practice but um you know, I do hunt with, uh, you know, like single bevel steel, carbon steel broadheads a lot just because of their, the high level of lethality and the, the sort of ethical component of hunting. And so if you're going to do something like hunting with a stone arrowhead, like you've really got to weigh like the, your own personal capability with your ethics and determine like, can I make this shot? Can I put this shot in a place that I feel like I can make an ethical, you know, kill in this situation? Because I'm definitely one of those hunters that's like the, the biggest buck I've ever had an opportunity to shoot at in my life. I drew on that deer three times and ultimately decided not to take the shot. He was 15 yards away from me. 
but I could not stop shaking and I couldn't get my shit together. And I did not release an arrow because I was like, if I make a bad shot on this animal, I'll never forgive myself. And I, I don't regret the decision to this day, but I mean, he was by far the biggest deer I've ever had standing in front of me. And, uh, you know, it's, but everybody, yeah, those are the types That's of hard decisions. To do, it is. It's the, those are the types of decisions that you struggle with. And one of the things that makes hunting with a bow so intense. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, everybody's different, but, um, I think ultimately you have to accept responsibility, you know, for the decisions that you make out there because there's no one there looking over your shoulder. It's up to you. And that's what, you know, being an ethical hunter is all about is like being able to do it when no one's looking. And it, it's, it's not easy, you know, and I, I'm not going to sit here and paint myself as someone who's never made mistakes or done yeah, stupid I mean, we things, all, we all right? Have, sure. I've made bad shots on deer for sure. And that type of stuff, but it led me to a point in my life where I like knew enough about what's possible and what level of responsibility you have by participating in this activity to the point that, you know, it's like, you need to wrestle with these questions a little bit and ask yourself, like, should I make this shot? Should I not? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's just all part of the whole life learning experience. And I think those are super valuable lessons that, that, you know, I don't know if you're not wrestling with those questions to me, you're, you're doing it wrong. Like you're, you, you kind of maybe don't, you haven't earned the opportunity and that's hard to quantify, right? Like, I don't know, like everyone deserves the opportunity to be out there, but I do think that some people behave in such a way that like, I don't know if it were up to me, there's definitely some people that, you know, probably shouldn't be out there doing things the way that they're doing them. Just because it it goes back to respect, like respect among people, but also like you have to have enough respect for the, I mean, you are taking a life ultimately. And, um, I do believe there's a right and wrong way to do that. And, uh, you know, I mean, everything kills to eat. Everything that eats meat is is a source of food, right? I mean, we take a look at the animal kingdom, you know, it's like, does a mountain lion have ethical qualities about the way it hunts a deer down you know now we're jumping into a whole other thing you know but uh it's like i don't know there's a a connection between predator and prey and you know uh we have evolved to the point that we are with a a certain level of consciousness that other animals don't have and so I think we owe it to ourselves to use it and to ask those questions. Um, and I think it makes us better when we do. Yeah. I mean, I, dude, I think a good way to wrap this up might be, I think what we've been talking about this whole time is just, you know, mindfulness and yeah. uh, respect and, and, and yeah, I don't, I don't even want to overstate it. Just, mindfulness uh, is important and it's obvious that you're you're looking at the the multitude of things that you're involved in uh with a mindful eye uh well man i so appreciate the conversation man and uh, the chance to like we've known each other for a couple years but i feel like i got to know you a lot better through this conversation and uh 
man so yeah how can how can people you know keep up with what you're doing and like yeah. support you and yeah i appreciate find that. your stuff yeah so again my my business that i'm a, a part owner of is called the packard outdoor center it's in fayetteville arkansas uh and next year the the business will be 50 years old which is pretty oh, wow. incredible yeah it's been in fayetteville since started in 1973 um i've been there for 23 years um and so uh, that's like my bread and butter. It's my my you know day to day job. Um, but also um, on Instagram, you can find me at Packrat Bushcraft. Um, that is a lot about the education that I do. So I teach a lot of like everything from primitive skill classes, you know, primitive fire to archery and uh, land navigation, map and compass work. You know, wide variety of those types of skills. So you can find out. Um, uh, you know, or see kind of what I'm up to there. Uh, and then also now on Instagram, off grid threads, um, that's a brand new page that I just put up. So I don't have many posts there yet. Um, but hopefully there'll be more coming, uh, soon on that one. Um, so yeah, those are, those are the main, and then, uh, how we started the whole thing off, uh, with the Bruja Bushwhack, uh, if you Google, uh, brujabushwhack.com, uh, that will actually kind of redirect you back to Packrat, but there's a component of the Packrat website that's all about, uh, the Bruja and it'll tell you kind of what's going on with it. And it's two-sided. Um, we talked primarily about the adventure race component, but there's a whole other side that's an outdoor festival. And so I bring modern gear companies and stuff like that together with a bunch of my friends that are like very uh, experienced primitive skills people. So like I'll have friends that are boyers, flint nappers, uh, various you know types of earth skill instructors and um, they'll be there teaching stuff and, and, you know, doing demos and that kind of thing. So it's not just about the, uh, the component of, um, you know, the, the adventure race. There's also this festival going on. Um, and, of course, I'm on the uh, Arkansas BHA board with Jonathan, and uh, Arkansas BHA will also be there. And so if you're, you know, familiar with us, you'll get to meet some of those guys there. Um, and, you know, a lot of other you know, local businesses that we invite to come out to it. Um, so if you're in the area, if that sounds at all in any way, like something that you'd be interested in, uh, yeah, I think April 9th is when that'll be going on. Check it out. All right, man. Well, hey, Rick, thanks so much. Thank you, man. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Hey, folks. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Black Duck Revival podcast. As always, it's produced by me, Jonathan Wilkins, and Brian Sachs. Like I've said before, catfish excursions are open, and we're booking those trips now. If you want to come and explore the uh, backwaters and the the uh, bayous, just some of my favorite stuff here in the Arkansas Delta, give me a shout. You can, uh, you can find more information on those trips by going to the website. That's just blackduckrevival.com. Go to the Experiences tab, and you'll have all the kind of pertinent information. You can reach out to me, and we can arrange a date. Those are like two-and-a-half-day-long trips for one to two people. It costs the same to bring two people as it does to bring one, so it's always more fun to bring a friend. Uh, as far as waterfowl dates, I am still working on that. I'm really trying to uh, cinch up my access and make sure that I'm offering the experiences this winter that I want to. So I know I said I'd have them, uh, I'd have all those dates released in March, but it's probably going to take just a little bit longer. But uh, 
never fear those dates are coming if you want to keep up with me and what i'm up to before you uh, before we know it we'll be here at the end of april which means that i'll be heading out on my uh, turkey tour heading out west kind of going to california up to oregon and then ending up at bha rendezvous uh, and if you want to follow that or any of the other stuff I'm up to, easiest way to do that is uh, on Instagram. And that's just Black Duck Revival. And as always, if you guys enjoy this podcast, please help me spread the word. Uh, tell a friend, tell an enemy, tell anybody about it. Uh, if you can make a post on social media, that's huge. Uh, and, you know, as always, uh, following, uh, subscribing, leaving a five-star review, a written review, all of that stuff helps tremendously. So, again, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.